All right, we are back. And we are admittedly not a sports program. But it is undeniable that to humanity, sports are important. And here in the U.S. of A., still the king of sports appears to be NFL football. Perhaps we are buoyed by the success of uh, our favorite team, the San Francisco 49ers. But no matter the reason, I wanted to, uh, to excerpt from uh, an interview conducted with Rune Arledge back in the 1970s. This was conducted for Playboy magazine. And yes, some people did read it for the articles. People like me, of course. Not me. I was really struck back in, I think it was 1976, uh, with the interview they conducted with Rune Arledge, and I wanted to uh, see if I can share some of, its, some of its high points with you in the top of our second half here. To quote from the magazine, 1960, ABC hired one Rune Pickney Arledge, a red-haired, freckle-faced, 29-year-old nobody, to produce 10 minutes of locker room drivel per week for the network's NCAA football broadcast. But about a month before the start of the 60-61 football season, Arledge placed a strange document in the hands of Tom Moore and Ed Sherrick, Network's programming and sports directors. It was a theoretical treatise on the TV production of football, recommending such unheard-of techniques as the use of directional and remote microphones, the replacement of halftime shows with highlights, and an analysis of the first two quarters the use of handheld and isolated cameras, the use of split screens, and the filling of dead spots during the game with pre-recorded biographies and interviews. Moore and Sherrick decided to give the kid his shot. He was installed as producer of NCAA football. The sponsor, Gillette, was skeptical, but they hung in there and the show went on. Noted the magazine, the electronic age of sports coverage was underway and Arledge was its revolutionary. Between 1960 and the present, that was 1976, Arledge spun out in dizzying succession top-rated sports shows. In the process, he advanced to network vice president in 1964 and president of ABC Sports, Inc. in 1968. One of his most famous electronic toys, the instant replay, has profoundly altered the way sports events are viewed and may soon change the way they are officiated. Well, that's, that's a long time ago. Now, they actually use the instant replay to reverse or review most of the important calls in the game. Something I didn't know from this introduction was back in the late 1950s, Rune Arledge produced Sherry Lewis's Kitty Show, Hi Mom, which won an Emmy Award. And I know that there are some of you out there of a certain age that the very name Sherry Lewis is going to produce a smile on your face. By 1961, Arledge had introduced ABC's Wide World of Sports, the, uh, the music of which we started this segment with from which the phrase, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, has passed into our language. Anyway, an interesting guy by any standards, and, uh, well, on to the interview. He was asked how it was the instant replay got started. Said Arledge, in 1960, I was doing a survey for a college game. That was in the Los Angeles Coliseum. There was an engineer they named Bob Trackinger. Arledge said, Track is one of the most brilliant guys in the business, our head man on the West Coast now, but at the time he was just a working engineer. After the survey, we went over to a place called Julie's for a few beers. I asked him if it would be possible to replay something in slow motion so you could tell if the guy was safe or in or stepped out of bounds. And Track immediately began sketching on the napkins. We talked and sketched and drank beer that whole afternoon. And when we were finished, we had the plans for the first instant replay device. So the magazine, the top people at ABC must have been pretty excited when they saw those napkins, Arledge. On the contrary, 
Track superiors at ABC Engineering thought he was crazy. They were opposed to the idea and wouldn't give him any development money. So he literally took funds that were supposed to be used for something else and developed the system. It was first used during the Texas-Texas A&M football game. It was a lousy game, and the replays were justifiably unmemorable. But the following week, during the Boston College-Syracuse game, which was a terrific game, at one point, Jack Concannon, a sophomore quarterback, was trapped in the pocket, but he ended up running 70 yards for a touchdown. Six or eight people had a shot at him, and we replayed the whole thing in slow motion with Paul Chrisman analyzing the entire play as it unfolded. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before, and the impact was unbelievable. That moment changed TV sports forever. Note to the magazine. Back in the early 60s, when you were producing the old AFL football broadcast, you used to pull all sorts of weird technical stunts, said Arledge. I'd prefer to call them experiments, but yes, we did play around a lot since nobody was watching anyway, particularly when the NFL was on opposite us. We had the freedom to try new things. That's how we invented the isolated camera. Much of the space-age coverage we supposedly pioneered on Monday Night Football was actually developed on our AFL telecasts in the early 60s. Nobody knew about that because nobody was watching. Magazine asked, you're the first guy to put sound into TV sports, Arledge. It's hard to believe now, but back in the so-called golden age of the NFL, you couldn't even hear the ball being kicked. I knew we had to get those sounds on the air. Playboy. But not all the sounds of the game are acceptable to the FCC, Arledge. Well, that's true. And first we used a two-second tape delay, but I never liked it because you'd see the huddle break and they were halfway to the line by the time you could hear them clap and say, let's go. So finally I just said, to hell with it, and we went live. Playboy, have you ever gotten into trouble for any of those live sounds? Arledge, a couple of times. You know how... A stadium sometimes quiets down all of a sudden until for a brief moment there isn't a sound. Well, it happened to us once during the Cotton Bowl. Absolute dead silence. Then some guy in the stands starts screaming, Get going, you mother... Well, you know the rest. It came over the air with better quality than we were getting from our announcers. <laughs> and I mentioned at the top of the show how things change and people sort of forget, uh, you know, events and personalities of the past. And I did have to explain to my 29-year-old nephew a few weeks back who... Howard Cosell was. If you're over, I would guess, uh, the age of 50, Howard Cosell needs no introduction. For those of you not familiar with him, I would describe him as being famously brash. And he, too, got his start with Rune Arledge. Asked how that happened, Arledge explained, well, Howard was a lawyer who had represented a number of athletes, including Willie Mays. He'd done some local radio and TV sports and had tried many times to get on national television. But to tell you the truth... He was blackballed. Playboy. Why? Arledge. Well, a lot of it was anti-Semitism. But many other people just hated his guts on general principles. Personal reaction. Playboy. But you hired him despite the blackball. Arledge. I was tremendously impressed by the fact that he developed a great rapport with the athletes and he'd done it on his own. When a guy's with a major network or magazine, the athletes have to, you know, Playboy, kiss his butt. Arledge. Yes, because he's important. He has the power of his medium behind him. But Howard had achieved that power on his own. So for that reason, and because I thought he had a funny voice, I had him to do the pregame show on our ill-starred baseball telecasts in the mid-60s. Playboy. Why, why ill-starred? Because the broadcasts were poor and the ratings were worse. But I, I didn't blame the stars. They were okay. We were lousy. Playboy. But Cosell was good? Arledge. I thought he did a hell of a job. He got players to do things they'd never do for anyone else. 
Once he even got his pitcher to demonstrate his spitball. So despite the hate mail and little remarks from network executives when I began to produce boxing, I decided to give Howard a try. Howard had never been a fight announcer, but he knew Floyd Patterson and a lot of other people, and he did very well. Playboy, what do you mean by the little remarks from network executives, Arledge? When a guy's blackballed, you hear all kinds of things. Some people just say, I don't think you ought to use him anymore. You know what I mean? Others were more specific, like, the sponsor's wife hates him, and everybody at my country club thinks he's a loudmouth Jew. Playboy, you mentioned anti-Semitism before. How much of that antagonism toward Cosell would you attribute to that? Arledge, it's hard to say, because Howard embodies the entire anti-New York feeling people have around America, and a large part of that feeling is based on anti-Semitism. Playboy, if people hated him, why'd you keep him on the air? Arledge, I kept him on the air because I think he's a good, honest journalist. And to illustrate just how honest he is, even when I was the only guy in the business willing to hire him, he still persisted in bad-mouthing me. What effect did he have on ratings? Apparently, assuming the ratings are accurate, Howard is the man middle America loves to hate. Some people watch because they love him. Others watch hoping to see him fall on his ass. But everybody watches. You know, Howard was really the, the first guy in the media to publicly defend Muhammad Ali during his years as a draft resistor, and he was the only one to call him Ali immediately after he changed his name. Playboy, what's it like to work with Muhammad Ali? Arledge, he's a strange man, very childlike, but very honorable, and he has the world's shortest attention span. In the middle of talking to him, he will suddenly begin playing with something or looking out the window, and you'll be absolutely certain he didn't hear a word you said. But then... Six months later, when even you've forgotten what you said, you'll discover he, not only did he hear and remember it, but he intends to hold you down to the last detail. Ali keeps his commitments and expects others to keep theirs. But uh, before you tell him anything, make sure you can say it in less than six seconds. Otherwise, he'll start fiddling with your staple in the middle of a sentence, and you'll feel like an idiot. Anyway, in an interesting section where Arledge talks about Monday Night Football, this exchange took place. Do you ever feel Cosell antagonized people a little too much? Arledge, sure, but that's only natural. There are people in this country for whom football isn't a game, it's a religion. They want Pat Summerall to say that was a zig-out. Beyond that, they don't want their religion disturbed. They certainly don't want Howard criticizing everybody or Don Meredith saying about football as he did one night. There must be more to life than this. To some people, football is life, and Howard had quite a few death threats because of the things he said about somebody's favorite player. On several occasions, we'd broadcast the game from a control booth full of FBI agents. Playboy, that's pretty bad. Arledge, there's worse. I probably shouldn't tell you this. I've never even told Howard. Playboy, oh, go ahead. Arledge, well, there's a bar down south where during the football season, all the regulars put in a few bucks a week, and on Monday night, they buy an old TV set and a load of buckshot, and they draw lots. And the first time Howard's picture appears on the screen, the winner gets to blast the TV to smithereens. <laughs> then they all get drunk and watch the game on another set. Arledge also talks about how he tried to transition Howard into the mainstream by getting him a live TV program on Saturday. It was called Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell. At this point, I'm going to jump out of what Rune Arledge had to say and go with what Chevy Chase had to say, which was that during the first season, the corporate lawyers at NBC told them not to announce the show as Saturday Night Live because there already was a show on ABC with that name. Chevy Chase once said he tried to argue with him about this, saying, 
Well, okay, they're calling their show Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell. We should call ours Saturday Night Live without Howard Cosell. Anyway, Arledge was a guy that transcended sports. He was asked by the magazine, what would a Rune Arledge news program be like? Said Arledge, the first thing I'd do as a news producer would be to hire a staff of investigative reporters. Television did nothing with Watergate, which was perhaps the biggest news story in the history of our nation. Well, that's a bit overblown, but anyway. Arledge said, because Watergate was essentially an investigative story. John Mitchell didn't hold a press conference to reveal he was one of the co-controllers of Nixon's secret funds. So naturally, television newsmen had to read that in the papers. Another thing I do as a news producer is personalize world leaders the same way I personalize sports figures. I do one-minute press conference-type interviews on the 6 o'clock news and hour-long documentaries on prime time. That way, on a daily basis, we could get to know who these people are. During our Olympic coverage, we routinely run documentary profiles of the athletes. The next morning, Americans know not only what people like Orga Colbert and Dorothy Hamill look like, but where they came from and to at least some extent the kind of people there are. You know, I want to editorialize myself at this point. When Rune Arledge ran the Olympic coverage, it was wonderful to see them go like into Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and follow what the life was like for an Uzbeki gymnast. Once the folks determined to extract more profit out of the Olympics took charge, the coverage seemed exclusively focused on Americans because that, those American athletes were our athletes, and that way when you won a gold medal, McDonald's or whomever could associate their product with Olympic gold. But we're still back in 1976, and I want to read the conclusion of this interview, which I've been excerpting. Playboy asked him at the end, of all the shows you produced, what would you consider the greatest moment, the single most important image you've ever beamed out to the world? Said Arledge, the word important may seem to require some justification in this context, since individually, both sports and television are essentially trivial. But when the two are combined, they can become very important. And I think my most important moment came during the 1963 U.S.-Russia track meet in Moscow. In those days, the meet was a titanic international struggle with the conflict between the two systems. In that particular year, the U.S. and Russia were trying to put together the first meaningful arms agreements of the Cold War. Nikita Khrushchev and Ambassador Avril Harriman were negotiating day and night. At the very end of the meet, the two of them came out to Lenin Stadium to watch Valery Brunel, the great Russian high jumper, try for the world's record. It was getting dark and a light rain began falling. Brumel was down to his last attempt. He sprinted toward the bar, leapt, and made it. There was a momentary lull as 90,000 people waited to see if the bar would topple. It didn't, and the crowd exploded. I turned our camera on the chairman's box, and Khrushchev and Harriman were jumping up and down, screaming, hugging each other. That was the single most important image I've ever broadcast. Two old men enemies who spoke different languages and couldn't even agree on the way to prevent the world from blowing itself up. Yet, they were there, embracing like brothers on world television at the simple act of a man jumping over a bar.
All right, once in a while we do obituaries in this program, actually more than once in a while, because there's so many people out there that are leaving us who deserve a word or two. And just as a side note, if I died, would you do an obituary on me? Yes. You're not just saying that while I'm alive, are you? Yes, I am. I'm lying. I don't do it very often because I'm, I'm not very good at it. But a guy who passed recently deserving a few words in this program is Paul Volcker. Noted the week in the early 1980s, Paul Volcker was perhaps the most hated man in America. He'd been appointed chairman of the Federal Reserve by President Jimmy Carter in 1979 after nearly a decade of runaway inflation and weak growth. Volcker set out to cure the nation's malaise through a program of economic shock therapy. Volcker slashed the supply of money flowing into the economy, sending interest rates soaring to just over 20% at their peak. Ouch, I remember those days. The U.S. tumbled into a deep recession with unemployment peaking at 10.8%. Home builders mailed Volcker unused two-by-fours and protesting farmers circled the Federal Reserve Building with tractors. But by 1983, inflation had fallen from 12% to below 4 allowing Volcker to take his foot off the brakes. I'm not sorry about it, he said back in 2018. I don't know any other course of action that would have been politically feasible or economically feasible. Born in Cape May, New Jersey, where his father was city manager, said the New York Times, Volker was a reserved youth. At six foot seven, he became a top student, and thanks to his height, a member of the varsity basketball team. Rejected by the Army because he was an inch too tall, he enrolled at Princeton, writing his senior thesis on Fed policy. In the early 1960s, he served as director of financial analysis in President Kennedy's Treasury Department. That's according to the Los Angeles Times. His reputation for nonpartisan competence led President Nixon to appoint him to the Treasury Department, where he helped shape Nixon's momentous decision to take the U.S. off the gold standard. Volcker was serving as head of the New York Fed when Carter put him in charge of the Federal Reserve, said the Financial Times. Two months into the job, he announced his shock therapy at a press conference that became known as Saturday Night Special. Volcker believed the economy was caught in a vicious cycle with Americans borrowing, spending, and demanding ever higher wages to keep ahead of inflation, which in turn caused prices to rise. His success tackling inflation laid the foundation for governments around the world to give greater independence to their central banks. To which I would add, but apparently not in either Argentina or Brazil. Anyway, for a man who understood the mysteries of money more than anything else, said the Washington Post, Volcker had little use for the trappings of wealth. He smoked drugstore cigars and wore ill-fitting suits. During his days as Fed chairman, he lived in a tiny foggy bottom apartment using green milk crates as end tables. It's hard not to like this guy. Reappointed Fed chairman by President Reagan, he declined a third term amid tensions with the administration over financial deregulation, which he adamantly opposed. Serving on President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board in the wake of the 2008 financial crash, Volcker was highly critical of banks' risk-taking, said the Times of the UK. The former Fed boss lent his name to the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill's Volcker Rule which banned taxpayer-protected banks from engaging in speculative trading with their customers' deposits. In a 2018 interview, Paul Volcker said he doubted whether a Washington that had lost the public trust and was now stuffed with lobbyists and lawyers would be up to tackling the next crisis. 
said Volker, we're in a hell of a mess in every direction. And this puts a little bit of a cold chill up my spine because here on Radio Parallax back in 2004, I think it was, we spoke with Nixon's former Commerce Secretary, Pete Peterson, who had written a book about the economy, what needed to be done to prevent mayhem. Peterson was one of the big guys in the Blackstone Group, you know, a, a mover and shaker, not the kind of guy we are often privileged to get on this program. Peterson's basic take was, we need to cut the crap in Washington and act more financially responsible. And during our interview with him, he quoted his good friend, Paul Volcker, as saying that the odds of an economic crash in the next few years was something he put at, well, frankly, I don't remember whether it was three out of four or two out of three. It was one or the other, but he was pretty much betting that things were going to go to hell. And by God, Volcker was right. At any rate, we are definitely unqualified to make uh, sweeping pronouncements about economics on this program. But as Mr. Merlin likes to point out, in truth, there's nobody out there qualified to do that. Well, maybe you know somebody with a crystal ball that works, and, but we don't. But having said that, I, I've grown, I have to note, cynical about the rosy economic pronouncements that one hears out of, well, the Trump administration. People are back to work, inflation's down, the economy's growing, everybody's employed, blah, 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 blah. I really wonder about the people gathering the statistics at the Labor Department, frankly. Frankly, I'm also not sure the Trump administration in making rosy forecasts isn't itself relying upon a crystal ball. Well, maybe a Ouija board. But I do know a lot of people who are nervous right now. So it is that I personally would counsel caution, which I admit is utterly useless advice. Caution about what, you say? And all about all I have by way of reply is risky investments. You, you get to use your own judgment on what's risky. And something else we feel the need to comment upon that involves risk is California's future. Our nation's most populous state has some issues regarding resource management. The main resource, I think, is water. We don't have an unlimited supply of it. And yet, real estate developers and speculators continue to build, build, build as if there will be no reckoning tomorrow. But in this case, from the East Bay Times, the editorial board of that publication has a piece out titled, Newsom is being played by Big Ag over Delta Water. I'd like to excerpt from this a little bit. Notes the piece. He won't admit it. But Governor Gavin Newsom is being played by big ag interests as he tries fruitlessly to negotiate a truce in California's water wars. The governor's apparent willingness to play into the hands of moneyed agribusiness players at the expense of the health of the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta remains the biggest mystery of his short tenure. It also threatens to trash his reputation as a strong protector of California's environment. The Delta supplies water for 25 million Californians, including about one-third of Bay Area residents. Scientists agree that allowing more, not less, water to flow through the Delta and west towards San Francisco Bay is essential for protecting fish life and providing a clean supply of drinking water for current and future generations. That means restricting pumping of water out the south end of the Delta 
into Central Valley farmland. The governor's been trying for months to get the major urban and ag players to reach a voluntary agreement on water flows. But on December 10th, the Fresno-based Westlands Water District, the largest ag district in the nation, threatened to pull out of the talks. Westlands General Manager Tom Birmingham said it would be impossible to reach a voluntary agreement if Newsom followed through on his November pledge to sue the Trump administration over the federal government's plan to pump more water south to Central Valley farmers. It's the same strategy Westlands used in September to pressure the governor to veto SB1, which is something we talked about on this show a little bit earlier. The bill would have established as state standards the federal environmental protections that existed before Trump became president. SB1 offered Newsom the tool needed to thwart the Trump administration. It might have also given the governor leverage to bring environmentalists and farming interests to the table to reach a voluntary agreement. But the governor caved to big ag interests in hopes that they would work cooperatively on a negotiated deal. Well, we see how well that strategy worked. The question now is whether Newsom will capitulate again to ag interests by backing down on his promise of a lawsuit to block the federal government's planned increase of Delta water diversions. The governor's repeatedly made clear he will rely on the best available scientific evidence to protect our environment. Notes the paper, that science is unequivocal. In the same week that Newsom vowed to sue the Trump administration, the state released a draft environmental impact report based on a decade of science and quantitative analysis of the best available data on flows, modeling, habitat, and climate change impacts. The report made clear that the operating rules proposed by the Trump administration are not scientifically adequate and fall short of protecting species and the state's interests. The scientists in charge of drafting the federal government's environmental impact plan said much the same thing. That is, until the Trump administrators got wind of the conclusions and promptly replaced the scientists. In short order, a new report emerged saying pumping an additional 500,000 acre-feet one acre foot is enough to supply two households for a year, to the Central Valley wouldn't hurt the Delta's health. Note of the editors, the ball is in Newsom's court. The governor should follow through on his lawsuit against the Trump administration, act on the best available science to secure California's fresh water supply. Well, we hope he's listening. Or hope he reads the paper. All right, we've only got a couple minutes left. I would note as we wrap up that a couple months ago I ran into an old friend who... uh, hadn't seen in many, many years. She mentioned that her daughter had moved to the state of Oregon so that her grandkids didn't need to get vaccinated, which caused me to react with an uh-oh. It was further revealed that she was part of a team operating a series of thermography clinics, which I didn't know that much about, except that some people understand it because it involves no radiation. But here's what breastcancer.org had to say about it. February of this year, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration put out a safety communication on the subject, stating that thermography is not a substitute for mammograms. I quote, There is no valid scientific data to demonstrate that a thermography device, when used on its own or with diagnostic tests, are an effective screening tool for any medical condition, including the early detection of breast cancer or other diseases and health conditions. 
adding that mammography, taking x-ray pictures of the breast, is the most effective breast cancer screening method, proven to increase the chance of survival through early detection. Anyway, you may want to keep that in mind if you're contemplating thermography in lieu of mammograms. You know, I think I probably have lost an old friend with what I just said, but oh well. We here at Radio Parallax continue to want to call them as we see them. All right, we are out of time. We decided to start uh, 2020 on a rather uh, tranquil note. We may get nasty in the weeks to come. In fact, I'm, I'm sure we will. But, but that's us, isn't it? This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who's frankly itching to get nasty in the weeks to come. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. Me, I am your host, Howard Cosell, to which I would add, be sure to turn in next week. To do otherwise would be foolish. And you know, for once I'm going to have to agree with Howard on this one.